take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 6. And in just a minute, I want to read from verse 28 on into chapter 7, uh, really through verse 7. Uh, I'm sure many of you have had to relay a message to someone on someone else's behalf. All of us have probably had to do that at some point or another. Maybe you found yourself in the middle of a situation where communication lines were strained and a person could not get a message through uh, but by you. Or maybe uh, you received a directive from your supervisor and you were responsible for communicating some message to others who report to you. And the thing is, when you're communicating a message on someone else's behalf, that's always a serious thing. And it's serious because you don't want to be guilty of misrepresenting the person whom you're speaking uh, on on their behalf. Uh, You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to give the wrong impression. You don't want to communicate misinformation. Now, if that's true in our human relationships... How much more true is it that we not misrepresent God with our words and our actions? And so in our text this morning, we're going to see that Moses is told to deliver a message to Pharaoh from God. Moses doesn't get to come up with the content of that message. Uh, This is not a matter of Moses, his own opinion. Uh, He's not there to shoot the breeze. No, he's to deliver a word from God to Pharaoh and to Egypt. Moses is called to speak on God's behalf and declare God's words to the king of Egypt. And so we might could say that he serves as a mouthpiece for God. He's an instrument through whom the word of God is to be faithfully declared. Now, one thing we're going to learn from this text is that the Lord's program or his method of choice for getting his word out to the world is through the witness of ordinary believers. God's program has always involved using ordinary men and women just like me, just like you, of getting the truth of his word out to the nations. And whether you realize this or not, he wants to use you to proclaim the truth of his word. Uh, One pastor of a generation before us said it this way, our Lord has no eyes, no feet, no hands to use now, but those of his people in his church, which is his body. And each member has a function and an obligation. It was in the church of the early days of Christianity when men, women, and children went everywhere talking of the Savior and his redeeming love, and so it should be today. Again, you go to the book of Acts and you see how Luke, the author of Acts, he's very clear when he writes that it's through the witness of ordinary Christian men and women that the gospel goes forth to the nations. You know, it's not the superstars of evangelicalism that God raises up for the purpose of evangelizing the nations. No, it's his church, it's us, it's people just like us every day whom God uses as his mouthpiece. And so that's something that we see here illustrated in the life of both Moses and Aaron. I've heard it said this way, you may be the only Bible that some folks ever read. You may be the only genuine believer that some folks will ever know. What will they come to know about Jesus through your life, through your witness, through the way that you use your words 
and share the message of God? In what way will you serve as his faithful mouthpiece, pointing other people to Christ? Well, notice with me what the text says here. Let's let's begin reading in verse 28. Uh, The Bible says, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. So Moses, you're going to be my mouthpiece. You're responsible for sharing the message that I've revealed to you. And so Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Now, you're to be my mouthpiece, Moses. You're to speak the words that I give to you, Moses. But know this, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. A couple of octogenarians who serve as the mouthpiece of God to the most powerful man in the world at the time. What's your excuse? We have no excuse, do we? So I want to speak from this subject this morning, God's mouthpiece. Uh, There's something that we can learn uh, about what it means to be a witness for Christ from the example of both Moses and Aaron here in this passage of Scripture. Now, in the case of Moses, he is called by God to be a mouthpiece to Pharaoh, to speak the truth of God's Word to the king of Egypt. Now, I want you to see three things in particular about this. Number one, notice the protest of Moses' faltering lips. Even though God's clear, Moses, I want you to serve as my mouthpiece. I want you to deliver my message to Pharaoh. Uh, Moses keeps coming up with various excuses. It's not an easy thing to declare the truth of God to someone who will not receive it as such. And yet that's what Moses is called to do here in this passage. And so you'll discover that once more we see that God is sort of prefacing his instructions to Moses by first of all reminding him of his name. Uh, Moses, I am the Lord. And because of who I am and the fact that you've come to know me, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I'm going to tell you. And so that's really all that Moses needed to know. His eyes were to be focused upon the one who called him rather than uh, the response that his words would generate. Neither must Moses focus on himself. However, he keeps coming back to his own inabilities, his own weaknesses, and that's something that we've seen over and over again these last couple of chapters here in our study of Exodus. Moses really can't see past his own limitations. He can't see past his own weakness. 
So what is it that he needs to do? Well, two things. Uh, First, he needs to surrender his personal reluctance. To serve as God's mouthpiece, Moses is going to have to surrender his own personal reluctance. Uh, Listen to his protest there in verse 30. Uh, He says to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, you remember earlier, he asks the why question. So here we're seeing some progress in Moses' growth. There's some growth here. You know, he, he initially goes, he experiences resistance. Things get harder for the people of Israel back in chapter 5. The end of chapter 5, Moses is asking this question of God. Why? Why have you sent me? You've not delivered your people at all. Well, here he's graduated from the why question, and now he's moved on to the how question. Now, I ask both of, those, both of those questions at times in my life. You do too. Why? Well, because I'm God. That's why. That's the answer that Moses receives. How? That's the question that he's asking now. How is it that you're going to accomplish this act of redemption? And Moses is going to discover that it's going to be only by the power of God. It's not going to be a matter of his own strength or his own ability, but it's going to be all about his surrender. Will he surrender himself uh, to the Lord as an instrument, a mouthpiece for God? So when he says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, he's saying that he's unskilled when it comes to speaking ability. I like how the Living Bible paraphrases verse 30. It says, this is Moses who argued with the Lord, I can't do it. I'm no speaker. Why would Pharaoh ever listen to me? So again, it's his way of trying to convince God that he picked the wrong man for the job. Pharaoh would never listen to him because he was not a gifted speaker. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read all of this, for someone who didn't think he could speak, Moses sure had a lot to say, didn't he? I mean, he certainly has no problem speaking when it comes to raising his own objections. And oftentimes, you know, we have no problem when it comes to being critical or when it comes to uh, talking about why we can't do something. If we spend enough time or half the time simply sharing the message with unbelievers, half of the time that we spend arguing back and forth among ourselves why we can't do something, I'm telling you, I think we'd see a lot more people come to faith. It would be much more about the, the, the mission that God's given to us. So Moses, he needs to surrender his own personal reluctance. You know, pride is, is really so sinister because pride, it's insidious. It always places humanity at the center, whereas real humility surrenders to God. We tend to think of pride as only consisting of this idea of self-inflated ego. But you know, when you become so fixated on your own weakness, that's also a, a form of pride. Self-deflation can become a subtle form of pride where you can't get past yourself. You can't get past your weakness. And your focus is on you. And so pride is so insidious in that way. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't be anxious about your life. Don't fret over what you have or what you don't have. Don't be preoccupied with yourself. Uh, I've heard it said this way, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less to the point where you don't think of yourself at all. It's the attitude that the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, the attitude of Christ. 
The mind of Christ where, where Paul tells the Philippian church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't go about life, don't go through life looking out for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then really from verse 5 all the way through verse 11 of that chapter, the Apostle Paul describes the mind of Christ. Although he was in the form of God, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Even though he was the center of the universe... Even though he's the one who upholds the universe by his own sovereign word of power, he didn't go around strutting it. Neither did he go through life with just this overall sense of melancholy, but our Lord Jesus demonstrated a perfect humility that was completely, perfectly content in the Father's love. And from that contentment, he served, and he gave, and he obeyed. And so Moses has got to surrender his own personal reluctance. And here's the thing. If you're going to serve as a mouthpiece for God and a witness for Christ, you've got to surrender your own personal reluctance. Whatever that reluctance may be, whatever it may be, whatever you're resistant to uh, with reference to the call of God upon your life, whatever excuse you have, you've got to surrender that because when we keep coming back to the same old excuses, folks, that's pride at work in our hearts. So a second thing that Moses has to do, he, sur- he needs to surrender his own personal reluctance, but he also needs to embrace his spiritual responsibility. Despite his protests, God reminds Moses that he is the source of Moses' strength, and Moses needs to remember who he represents. His success would not be found in appearing eloquent and convincing before the Egyptians, but in simply being faithful to do what God commanded. Uh, look at what he says in verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And you're not in this by yourself because your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So what God's saying here, Moses, you're going to be my representative. You're not going to go before the king of Egypt in your own authority or in your own power or your own right, but you're going to be my representative. I'm giving you my authority. You're going to stand in the name of the Lord and in my own authority as my spokesman, as my mouthpiece. You're going to declare the word of the Lord to Pharaoh. Now, something that you need to know is that Pharaoh was considered to be divine by the Egyptians in Egyptian religious culture. The Egyptians believed that their pharaohs were literally the incarnation of the gods. They believed that the pharaoh was a living representation of the divine. And so by making Moses like God to Pharaoh, God is putting the pharaoh of Egypt in his place. Uh, Peter Enns, a Bible scholar, has said about this, that in Egyptian royal ideology, the Pharaoh was considered to be a divine being. And so by calling Moses God, the Lord is beating Pharaoh at his own game. It's not the king of Egypt who represents God, but rather it's this shepherd and leader of slaves who represents God. This is God's choice. And so in that way, this is really paradoxical truth. 
You know what a paradox is, don't you? G.K. Chesterton had the best definition of a paradox I've ever heard. He said that a paradox is truth standing on its head, kicking its legs, begging for attention. Upside-down truth. It's not the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world says it's the king of Egypt who really is God's divine representative, but the wisdom of God says, no, it's this lowly shepherd whom I've chosen, whom I've empowered by my spirit, whom I've given my word, to whom I've revealed my truth. He's the one who's going to represent me before the most powerful man. In the so it's weakness that God is using, not, not man's strength. And in that way, boy, that points us to the ultimate true shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our shepherd king. So, so what God is saying here, it's not that he's made Moses divine, but Moses does represent God to Pharaoh. He's a prophet who's speaking with divine authority. And so God has chosen a human instrument here to carry out his work. And, and this too is something that ultimately points me to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The writer of Hebrews begins Hebrews by saying this, long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's the one who upholds the universe by his word of power. So Moses is going to be a human instrument in the hands of God who's going to lead Israel out of Egypt, but he's preparing the way for Jesus Christ, who's that true prophet that's come into the world, who is God in human flesh. Which, by the way, Moses sort of will say something by way of prophecy about this later on toward the end of Israel's wilderness journeys, just before they enter the promised land not long before Moses himself dies and passes the baton to Joshua. Here's what Moses tells the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brethren. It's him. To him you shall listen. God says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to all of them the words that I command. So every prophet then that sort of follows in a line of succession from Moses forward is someone who is, is empowered by God, someone who is a mouthpiece for God, someone to whom God has revealed his word. But ultimately, this is pointing me to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true prophet, priest, and king. So what's a prophet? A prophet is just simply someone who declares the truth of God, a representative, someone who speaks on God's behalf. We tend to think of a prophet as being someone who predicts the future, and while there was an element of that in the prophet's ministry in, in, in biblical times, a prophet, most of his job was just simply forthtelling, not so much foretelling, but forthtelling, declaring the word that God had revealed to him. Now, folks, that word that we need to declare is right here. It's the gospel. 
And someone said that the problem with the church today is that it's a nonprofit organization, that we've just ceased functioning in our prophetic office of declaring truth, speaking truth, serving as the mouthpiece of God in the world today. You realize that that's our birthright as the people of God. That's why Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven on, on, on earth has been given to me, and in light of my authority, I'm sending you into the world And you're to tell the message to those you come into contact with. You're to go to the nations with the message of this gospel. You're to make disciples, and you're to baptize those who believe, and you're to teach them everything that I've commanded you. And so Moses, he protests. He can't get past his own faltering lips. But God chooses him to be his mouthpiece nonetheless. Now, notice the second thing here. And there's the problem of Pharaoh's hardened heart. The protest of Moses' own faltering lips, but what about the problem of Pharaoh's hardened heart? Moses, you're going to serve as my mouthpiece, but, and I want you to declare the truth to Pharaoh, but I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to listen to you. And even though I multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. So we're called to share the truth, but that doesn't mean that everyone is going to welcome our witness or believe what we say. And just because someone does not believe your witness or believe what you say when you share the gospel or you relay the message of the truth, that does not make you a failure in God's eyes. I've had far more people reject the gospel that I've shared than have embraced the gospel that I've shared when I've done one-on-one personal evangelism with people. You probably have had that experience too. Does that make you a failure? Well, not according to what the Scripture says. You need to understand what success really is. You need a a heavenly, biblical definition of success rather than a worldly definition of success because success in God's eyes is you simply doing what God's called you to do, being faithful to share the message, and you leave the results up to God. You can't save a person any more than you can create a star. Only God can create a star, and only God can save a man, woman, boy, or girl. And yet, he's chosen to use us as his mouthpiece. He's chosen to use us to share the gospel, to make disciples. But we keep in mind the fact that it's really the work of God in a person's heart and life. So Pharaoh's heart is hardened. What is a hardened heart? Listen, it's a heart that continually, stubbornly refuses to believe God when tested and obey God when ordered. And Pharaoh is the classic example in Scripture of what it means to have a hard heart. Despite witnessing all of the miracles that God performs through Moses, the heart of Pharaoh is hardened in his own sin and unbelief. In fact, that word hardened there translates a Hebrew word that means to stiffen or to strengthen. You go back to chapter 4, you remember that the Lord told Moses to take his staff and throw it on the ground. And when he did, it became a serpent. More than likely, it was probably a cobra, which was a symbol for ancient Egypt. It's interesting. And then he says, Moses, I want you to reach down and you take that thing by the tail. And I'm telling you, I think I really would have argued with God at that point. I said, what would you tell me to do, Lord? Forgive my unbelief. (laughs) 
But he reaches down and he, and, he, and he takes that snake by the tail and then it becomes a staff again. And so it's God's way of, of showing Moses that Moses, it's by my strength and by my power that you're going to overcome Pharaoh and the might of Egypt. My strength is superior than the strength of Egypt. And so it's not insignificant then that this is really the first sign that Moses is to do once he goes to Pharaoh's courtroom. He's to throw his staff down. It becomes a serpent. And then you've got Pharaoh's magicians who come along and somehow by their own secret arts and their own clever tricks, they're able to manipulate it and make it seem as though they can do the same thing. And, and the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. So what does it mean to harden your heart? Listen, it means to see clear evidence of the hand of God at work, and yet you refuse to accept his word and submit to his will. It means you resist him by showing ingratitude and disobedience, not having any fear of the Lord or of his judgments. Now, you, you, you go all the way through chapter 14, and, and if you read it, and you add up the number of times that the Bible says that Pharaoh hardens his heart, roughly you'll discover there's about nine times where the text says Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then you'll also discover there's about nine times where the text says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So for a total of 18, somewhere around 18 or 20 times or so, the Bible describes Pharaoh as having a hardened heart. Uh, one who personally makes a decision who stubbornly refuses to believe in spite of evidence, he hardens his heart. And then the Bible says, beginning in chapter 9, the first time in verse 12, it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What that means is you're simply seeing God who's giving Pharaoh over to the dictates of his own sinful will, his own stubborn refusal to submit to the Lord. And so he's confirming Pharaoh in his own unbelief. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time to camp out here, but let me just give you five characteristics of a hardened heart from what we learn about Pharaoh. Characteristic number one, a hardened heart is unbelieving of God's word. It's the most obvious characteristic in a person whose heart has become hardened. Pharaoh simply refuses to obey God. Now, Moses and Aaron... They're God's mouthpiece. They're faithfully declaring the word, but Pharaoh refuses to humble himself. And Pharaoh refuses to obey that word, and he stiffens his heart in disobedience. So a hardened heart is unbelieving when it comes to God's word. And then characteristic number two, a hardened heart is unwilling to change because of its own pride. Uh, you, you, you begin reading the, the plagues, and, and, and after the, the second plague, Pharaoh demonstrates this pattern of a hardened heart. After a brief reprieve from circumstance, he doesn't change. He persistently insists on going the same way. And so he's not looking for inward change, but he's looking for some outward change. And you'll discover that he, re he, really, he really wants... Uh, he doesn't want the circumstances that his sin brings about, but he's not willing to deal with the root issue that's bringing about those circumstances. He's not willing to surrender his pride. He's not willing to confess and repent of his own sin. So he's unbelieving when it comes to God's word. He's unwilling to change because of his own pride. 
Characteristic number three, a hardened heart is unmoved by spiritual stimuli. Even his own magicians, by the time you get into chapter eight, you'll discover that even his own magicians recognized the finger of God in what was going on. They can sort of duplicate, imitate, the first couple of plagues by their own secret arts, but by the time you get to the plague of flies, they're like, look, this is the finger of God, okay? There's a power at work here that we can't, we can't duplicate. We can't imitate. And so they see that, but Pharaoh sees that, but still his heart is unmoved. And that's because a person with a hardened heart doesn't recognize the spiritual realities around him. They refuse to see. They can't see the way that God's at work in their situation, even though close friends may be telling them, even though friends and family may be able to see, hey, discern the hand of God in this situation. But a person with a hard heart, they don't respond to any spiritual stimuli. They're always critical, always fault-finding always pragmatic, always looking to the here and now rather than the spiritual. Characteristic number four, a hardened heart is unrepentant when it comes to personal sin. You get to the end of the fourth plague, you'll discover that Pharaoh seems receptive whenever, whenever he says to Moses, plead for me, and yet his persistent refusal to let Israel go reveals that while he might want something from God, he's not willing to submit to God. And so oftentimes, a person with a hard heart, they want things from God, but they don't want to submit to God. They want benefits, but they don't want to submit their life to the Lord Jesus as master, as Lord. And then characteristic number five, a hardened heart is unconcerned ultimately for the needs of other people. Now think about this. Pharaoh was so blinded and so stubborn in his pride and hardened in his heart that he brings, he literally brings Egypt to the point of ruin. Things are absolutely to the point of ruin. You get to chapter 10, along about verse number seven. His counselors are saying, look, don't you see that we've been reduced to ruin here? Let these people go. You, you better listen. But again, his heart is so hardened. He's so persistent in his own unbelief that he's not concerned. And so the point is, men and women, now look at this. Pay close attention here. God is sovereign over Pharaoh, and yet Pharaoh is hardening his own heart, but God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's not as if Pharaoh were saying, oh God, please don't harden my heart. And there's a profound mystery here, both in the sovereignty of God as well as the responsibility, the culpability of Pharaoh. And the Apostle Paul deals with this in the ninth chapter of Romans, his whole point in Romans 9, where he says that God, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And yet all the while, Pharaoh is responsible for his own persistent unbelief. Now listen to me. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, and you walk out these doors in that lost condition, you cannot leave with this excuse. Listen to me. You can't say, I can't be saved because God has just hardened my heart. Because the point is, 
You get to a point where you so sin against God and you refuse to believe the message and you refuse the work of God's Spirit in your life, God may just confirm you at some point in your own unbelief to where you get to the point that you don't want His grace anymore. You don't want to hear any other word. You don't want to hear the witness of the gospel. And so oftentimes a person whose heart has been hardened There's no response whatsoever in their life to spiritual stimuli. And I'll tell you something. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if that's true for unbelievers, what about believers? What about his own people? You know, on one occasion, Jesus even said that his disciples were, were, were dangerously close to having hardened hearts. After the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, on one occasion, Jesus and his disciples were in a boat, and the Bible says they'd forgot to take bread. And Jesus says something to them. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He's trying to teach them spiritual truth, and then they begin talking among themselves and say, oh, it's because we forgot to bring bread. And Jesus says, guys, are you, are you, are you, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not understand? Do you not perceive? He says, are your hearts hardened to where you've just become calloused to spiritual truth and to spiritual realities? Has the ministry become something that has been reduced to nothing more than budgets and spreadsheets to you? going through services, checking religious boxes. To the point we become so numb and deadened to spiritual realities. I don't know about you, but I want to be sensitive to the leadership of God's Spirit in my life. I don't want to just go through business as usual with God. I don't want to let spiritual opportunities pass me by because I'm more concerned about what's going on in, in, in my life in this area and that area. No, I, I, listen, I don't want to be unmoved by the fact that there are 3.2 billion people in that 1040 window who've never heard about Jesus. I don't want to be unmoved by that. I don't want to hear that in a sermon and, 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 and say that's, too bad, and then go about my own merry way. I want to say, okay, Lord, how can you use me as your mouthpiece? How can you use me to help get the gospel out to my neighbors and to the nations? I don't want to have a hardened heart when it comes to spiritual truth and spiritual realities. You know, the thing is, if God's really going to use us as a church that's a beacon and a light and a hope that's pointing people to Jesus Christ, it's gonna, it's gonna take you and me really being sensitive to the leadership of God's spirit. To not being cauterized or calloused by circumstance. I think sometimes we can go through circumstance and we, can, we experience hurt and pain and sometimes it can cauterize us. I don't wanna be cauterized. That's why the psalmist says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts just as they did at Meribah in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me even though they had seen my work, even though I had made myself clearly known. 
They, they, they saw my power demonstrated, and yet they still tested me. Don't harden your heart. And you go back to Psalm 95, and then you look at the preceding verses before that, and you say, okay, pastor, how can I not have a hardened heart? What do I do to not have a hardened heart? Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord God, our maker, for he is our God, and we're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So, so keep those spiritual fires burning. Know the God that you worship. Call upon him in faith. Look to him in confident trust and hope. Place all of your hope in Jesus. You may be in a time of testing now. Uh, there may be some type of real need or concern in your life now or the life of someone that you love. Maybe you've experienced some major disappointment in your life. Your back's up against the wall in some way. Maybe you've just come through a terrible, terrible issue in a relationship and you're, and you're wondering, God, can you take care of my need? And God says, you remember what I've done for you in the past, and you remember how I've rescued you from Satan's domain. You remember how I forgave you. You remember all that I've done. Remember how I've shown myself, myself strong and mighty on your behalf. And you know, if you feel like you're a little bit numb and hardened of heart, the first step is repentance and remembrance. Lord, remember, remember, help me remember who you are. Help me remember what you've done in my life. Hadn't he been good to you and your family? <laughs> Hadn't he been good to our church? Oh, hallelujah, God's been so good to me. Far better to me than I deserve. I'm glad that he's not given me what my sins deserve, but he's given me grace. In Christ, he bore the wrath and the punishment that my sins deserve, and now God has lavished upon me his own grace so don't harden your heart because if you do and you, you persist in that heart, it may be that God just strengthens you in that decision. That's what he does with Pharaoh here. But God's going to get glory nonetheless. God's going to get glory through Pharaoh nonetheless. So there's the protest of Moses' faltering lips. There's the problem of Pharaoh's hardened heart. Now one last thing that I want you to see, we'll finish with this. What about the power of God's mighty hand? Moses, you're to be my mouthpiece. And don't worry about your own inability to speak because here's how I'm going to bring my people out. I'm going to bring them out by my own mighty hand. My own power will be put on display to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And God says, I'm going to lead my people out by my own mighty hand. Now, we'll see this later on, but God's going to do this through great acts of judgment that come in the form of ten plagues that he pours out upon Egypt. And I've got good news for you. I'm not going to take ten weeks and go through all ten plagues week by week by week. We'll sort of look at the first nine all in one swoop, and then we'll deal with the last plague and the, and the Passover. But, but the point is, God is going to pour out his power and demonstrate himself strong and mighty on behalf of his people. And Moses and Aaron need to be confident in the power of God and the hand of God. And so the Bible simply says there, they obey God, they do what God called them to do, and listen, it's not insignificant that the Bible mentions their age. Moses is 80, and Aaron's 83. And so in that way, Moses and Aaron really show us how age is no obstacle when it comes to the work of God. 
You know, you, you can't use your age as an excuse for refusing to serve as God's mouthpiece. Did you know that? I'm just too old. This is for someone else to do who's younger than me. Well, tell that to Moses. Tell that to Abraham. And neither can you use your youthfulness as an excuse to refuse to serve as God's mouthpiece. Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but you be an example. So we, we see that God uses both young and old. He uses the boy Samuel to serve as his mouthpiece. He uses Moses and Aaron who are octogenarians in their 80s to serve as his mouthpiece. Age is no obstacle for the work of God. And I think a sign of a healthy church is when you have Older folks serving God alongside younger folks. Jesus is getting the glory through it all. And we understand no matter what age we are, God wants to use us whatever stage in life we're in to make disciples. And then location is no excuse for the will of God. Here you have Moses and Aaron. They're well past their prime. God's placed them in a difficult place, hasn't he? They're in a they've got a difficult assignment you be my mouthpiece in Egypt, a place where Pharaoh's not going to listen, a place where people are not going to respond, a place where it's going to be difficult, but location really is no excuse for the will of God. We can't ever say we can't do God's will because we're in the wrong place. And then difficulty is no barrier for the word of God. I learned from Moses and Aaron that difficulty is ultimately no barrier for the word of God. Strong, proud, rebellious, insolent Pharaoh. From my point of view, he seems like a real barrier to the Word of God. But let me tell you something. The Word of God is not bound. <laughs> God's Word will go forth. God says, I'm going to honor my Word. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. And you and I as believers can live in that confidence. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Listen. Are you God's willing servant? Are you willing and able and say, Lord, here I am. Here's my life. You know my age. You know my circumstances. You know my weaknesses, my inabilities. None of that surprises you, but Lord, I lay it all down on an altar of obedience. Here I am, Lord. Use me as an instrument. Use me as your mouthpiece. God wants to use you in that way, in some way, to your family, to your friends, uh, your neighborhood, the men and women that you work with. Will you make yourself available and say, Lord, would you just use my witness? It's not the job of the ministry professionals to get the word out. No, we're, we're simply, Ephesians 4 says that my responsibility as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To somehow help you see the critical role that you have to play in the mission of God of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we do that. We're to, we're to use our words to share the message of salvation with the lost. We're to let our light so shine that others may see our actions works of compassion so that they might see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Don't think that you're so insignificant that God can't use you to be his mouthpiece in someone's life because he can and he will and he wants to use you in that way. Heads bowed, eyes closed.
I'm going to invite you to come and pray with me. If you want to just slip out of where you are and say, Lord, I just want to come and I just want to bow and I just want to be your mouthpiece, Lord, in these days to this generation. You might just need to slip out of where you've been seated and come find a place and pray and say, Lord, I'm ready, I'm willing. Here I am, Lord. Would you use me? Would you send me? Would you come? If you're in need of salvation this morning and the Spirit of God has brought conviction to your heart and you say, Pastor, I want to be saved. I want to talk to someone about baptism. I'd love to pray with you. Pastor Jonathan would love to pray with you. We'll counsel with you even after the service. We invite you to come this morning. But Lord, you are so faithful. And, and Lord, I, I think about the need that surrounds us, Lord, here in our city and the world we live in. So much lostness, so much brokenness. But Lord, you want to use us to be your mouthpiece. Lord, we recognize that salvation, this is the work of the Lord by your grace. But God, may we not be insensitive and calloused and hardened and indifferent. But God, may there be a genuine spiritual sensitivity in my life and in the life and the witness of this church. God, when strangers come in our doors, God, may we go out of our way to be welcoming to love people in Jesus' name because we don't know what's going on just beneath the surface in someone's life. So God, help us to see. Give us your heart. Give us your eyes, your ears. Put your message on our tongue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.